Good evening, everybody. My name is Michael Suarez. I have the great privilege of being the director of Rare Book School, and I welcome you to this, the second weekly lecture on a Monday that we have. Uh, we're really honored to have our speaker today, but um, the events of the past 24 hours have kind of overtaken us a bit. And I think it's only proper that we should begin with a minute of silence. So as a gesture of solidarity and respect, I ask you please to join me in that minute of silence now. Thank you. Does everyone have a handout? Mike Kelly's talk will be deeply tortuous, <laughs> Byzantine, and intractable in nearly every way if you don't have the handout. <laughs> the last three notes are in Sanskrit. That should help. For 11 years, Mike Kelly was curator of printed books at NYU's Fales Library. In 2009, he became the head of the Archives and Special Collections at Amherst College, where he has become an outstanding leader in the field. He was, for example, um, a few years ago, a really distinguished leader when he was chair of the rare books and manuscripts section of the uh, Modern Library Association, and I'm very grateful to you for your leadership in that role. He holds an MA in English Literature from, of course, the University of Virginia. How could he fail? And an MLS from the University of Texas at Austin, where he spent two years as an intern in the Harry Ransom Center for the Humanities. Of course, the foundation of all his success, just as you might expect, comes from the fact that he is a graduate of Boston College in beautiful Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts, which modesty does not forbid me from telling you is a Jesuit university. <laughs> Everything I am and all that I have, said Mike Kelly, I owe entirely to those Jesuits. <laughs> okay, he didn't say that at all. 
Mike Kelly is guest curating an exhibition of Emily Dickinson's manuscripts at the Morgan Library in 2017 and has been a great force for good in making those manuscripts so long kept from the public eye uh, much more visible and accessible to scholars and to the general public. In January of 2016, Mike was awarded the Reese Fellowship for American Bibliography and the History of the Book in the Americas by the Bibliographical Society of America for the work on Occam that you are shortly to hear about. He is truly, truly a pioneer in this area and is demonstrating the power of bibliography in native studies that is going to transform the field forever. Please join me in welcoming Mike Kelly. Thank you, Father Suarez, for that lovely introduction. Uh, thanks to Jeremy, thanks to everybody at Rare Book School. I'm really happy to be here. This is a really great uh, evening for me. Um, and I also want to take a moment to acknowledge and honor and recognize the people who lived on this land long before Europeans arrived to settle here, the Monacan. Uh, the Monacan Indian nation is, present tense, one of the oldest groups of indigenous people still residing in their, in their ancestral homeland. Their ancestors inhabited most of modern Virginia more than 10,000 years ago. I want to recognize the Monacan Nation and ask all of you to try during my talk to consider the notion of native space. I am reasonably, reasonably confident that everyone in this room knows intellectually that people lived in North America for millennia before European settlers arrived. Take whatever knowledge you possess about Native Americans during the centuries since 1492 to the present and try to imagine the material lived history of that era from the indigenous perspective. And it can be that simple. Um, this is a map from a book called The Common Pot, The Recovery of Native Space in the Northeast by Lisa Brooks, who can explain in depth the concepts of native space and uh, settler colonialism better than I can. Um, so this is one of her maps. Um, and in her book, Lisa reframes the historical and literary landscape of what we now call New England by closely examining and re-examining the evidence contained within the colonial archives and indigenous knowledge systems to draw forth and reconstruct an indigenous presence. Part of recognizing native space is understanding that settler colonialism is a process rather than a single event. It is, it is a process that continues today. The role of the printing press as a tool in that process, as an agent of change, um, is a deep and increasingly fascinating topic that I will explain um, or demonstrate, hopefully, in, in what I present here. One of the points that I like to make about these maps um, are, you know, obviously no political borders, no modern political borders, really emphasizing the waterways as communications networks, as a networked space, as a very active space, as a very living space. Um, and there are intentionally no borders around the tribal regions either. Um, again, Lisa Brooks does a great job of explaining all of this. And through the very subtle device of simply not using Anglo names for anything. You know, it's not the Connecticut River, it's the Quinnecticut River. Um, so that's the kind of framework that I'm 
coming to this project from. Um, but I want to back up um, and explain how I got into, into this topic in the first place. So when professors Lisa Brooks and Chiara Vigil arrived at Amherst College in 2012, I could summarize our holdings of special collections materials authored by Native Americans in a paragraph or less. We have the standard ethnographic works by non-Native authors, a very nice Curtis, a fine McKinnian Hall, and a horrifying copy of Crania Americana, but nothing truly noteworthy. Um, through some mystical alignment of the stars, the personal collection of Pablo Eisenberg was offered for sale by the wonderful, wonderful Ken Lopez at that very moment, advertised as, quote, nearly 1,500 books written by Native American authors to be sold on block. Through the generosity of young Kim Waite, Amherst College, class of 1982, the Kim Waite Eisenberg collection was established in August of 2013 when Ken delivered the boxes. Um, today, we expect to pass 2,500 catalog records in our Native American literature collection by the end of 2016. And the scope of this collection, the emphasis is profoundly on Native authorship. And my favorite example of what that means is Gorky Park, uh, is written by Martin Cruz Smith. Martin Cruz Smith is a native person, so Gorky Park's a native book. Um, if it's a, or as, I, as we sometimes like to say, if it's a book by an Indian and we don't have it, we want to get a copy of it. Um, and emphasize as well that we are focusing exclusively on published material, so the public multiples rather than the private unique um, statements by native people about themselves that they wanted made public. So that's the scope of how we're building that collection and the fact that we went from 1,500, which everyone thought was, wow, that's, that's a lot, and we've already added 1,000 more books. Um, and we don't think the end is in sight. So where was I? Um, yes, through the, yeah, so, uh, um, yeah. Rebecca Hennen, pictured on the lower left there, uh, who holds a certificate of proficiency in the specialized area of collections, cataloging, and description from Rare Book School, deserves the highest praise for tackling these books with both great skill and great speed. All the catalogers in the room will appreciate. The original acquisition was cataloged within nine months. It is also worth mentioning to this audience um, that I made sure to alert the College Communications Department. These four photos on this on this slide were shot by the college photographer and used in print and web publicity around the acquisition, which resulted in, so far, two additional donations of books by Native writers from our alumni. So that's important. That part is important. Um, but let's talk about Samson Ockham. So the earliest item that arrived with uh, the Kim Wade Eisenberg collection was the fourth edition of Ockham's Sermon. And right away, you can see why it would catch the eye of the bibliographically minded uh, the date of the execution is 2 September 1772. The, this is the fourth edition, and the title page date is also 1772. So four editions within the last four months of the year, that's worth a closer look. But I very quickly determined that um, there was nowhere to look. No one had done the work. Apart from a single footnote in an 1899 biography of Samson Ockham that listed 19 editions, no one had taken the time to look. So that number had been repeated for over 100 years. Until now. Um, <laughs> rather than a blow-by-blow -blow recap of my research so far, I want to begin with a quick biography of Ockham, then walk through the publication history of this title and wrap up with some thoughts about the uses of bibliography. 
Uh, so who's Samson Occam? As, uh, as Molly Schwartzberg said, nobody knows what your talk is about. You're the only person who knows who this guy is. Um, so I'm going to tell you who Samson Occam is. Uh, the, uh, Samson Occam was born at Mohegan in 1723 on the eve of the First Great Awakening, a movement had, that had profound impact in native space and native communities. A combination of sincere interest in Christianity and a recognition that he must learn to use the English settlers' tools, pen and ink, reading and writing, in order to assist with the legal defense of Mohegan territory. Um, so that's his motivation to seek an education. Um, I couldn't possibly summarize the entire case here, but in 1704, the Mohegans launched the first indigenous land rights lawsuit in history against the colony of Connecticut. By 1743, when Ockham enrolled in Reverend Eleazar Wheelock's school in nearby Lebanon, Connecticut, the Mohegan v. Connecticut case was nearly 40 years old. The Crown would not issue a final decision in the matter until 1773. Involvement in that court case, I mean, this is the reason he learned to read and write English, was to participate in this court case, and it would cast a shadow over his relationships with the Anglo-American Christian evangelical network that he was connected to through Wheelock and others. Um, Oh, and just because, oh yeah, um, sorry, did I go backwards? No. Um, yeah, so Occam pursued, and this just to get your geography, um, you know, there's no vegan, long talk is coming up. Um, Occam pursued a, a standard classical course of instruction under Wheelock, learning a mix of Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, and he proved a very talented student. Um, after four years of study, Occam's poor health caused him to abandon his preparations to enter Yale, and instead he established himself as a minister, school teacher, and community leader among the Montaukett tribe of Long Island, beginning in 1749. Um, Occam married a Montaukett woman, Mary Fowler, in 1751, and was ordained in the Presbyterian Church in 1759. Oh, there's Eliezer Wheelock. Um, Oh, yeah, I was off the slide. Um, this is the, the black and white images you'll see are ones from Digital Evans. Um, so this is the sermon preached at the ordination of Samson Ockham. And note the name of Reverend Well on the title page of the sermon he preached on that occasion. Uh, Ockham, in 1761, embarks on a mission to the Oneida of central western New York, preaching among them and baptizing many converts, once again proving his skill as a spiritual leader among indigenous communities. Uh, he returns for a second residence among them the following year. While his success as missionary is noted, his involvement with the, the Mohegan politics is troubling uh, to, the, to the white people who are sponsoring these missions. Um, in 1765, he set sail for England with Nathaniel Whitaker to raise money to support Moore's Indian Charity School, uh, which was the one founded by Wheelock, and spends a year and a half touring England and Scotland. In spite of Ockham's very successful fundraising, he is constantly hard-pressed for funds and forced to defend himself against unfounded accusations of drunkenness. Um, and you know, he, tensions really rise when he decides he's not going to go back on the ship to, that, um, that Nathaniel Whitaker is sailing to the US or to America on because he's going to stay and attend some hearings around the Mohegan land case in London. So that kind of annoys uh, his, his evangelical partners. Um, then, when he gets back in 1770, Wheelock relocates the school from Connecticut to Hanover, New Hampshire. So the geography is always is all important here. Um, whoops. Just you know, seeing that um, that Wheelock school moves from there 
and I, yeah, you can barely see it at the very top of the map. Um, so a school that was founded right next to Mohegan that Occam went and raised lots and lots of money for is suddenly being relocated very far away. Um, and, and then he changed the name to Dartmouth, and then he abandoned his commitment to Indian education. So Wheelock pretty much took Dartmouth's money and left uh, Mohegan's in the lurch a bit. Um, but let's get on to the, to the sermon. Um, so we're going to begin at the beginning with the first edition of Occam's Sermon. Thomas and Samuel Green of New Haven advertised this sermon for sale on Friday, October 30th. Uh, in, I'm sorry, in the Friday, October 30th number of the Connecticut Journal, as now in the press and next Monday will be published, placing it in the hands of readers on or about November 2nd, 1772, exactly two months after the date of Moses Paul's execution. And here's an important point about what Philip Round, who is a leading scholar of Native American books from the Native American studies perspective, um, what Philip Round would call Occam's intellectual sovereignty over his own text. Occam's preface contains an important clue. Quote, it was a stormy and very uncomfortable day when the following discourse was delivered, and about one half of it was not delivered as it was written, and now it is a little altered and enlarged in some places. I don't want to overstate Occam's control over his text, which probably began and ended with the Greens waiting for him to clean up his manuscript before producing this edition, but the fact that he was allowed this courtesy at all is noteworthy. Uh, the details of Occam's relationships with his printers are proving nearly impossible to recover with any certainty, but this small detail opens up a world of speculation, uh, and we'll speculate a little later. Uh, sermons, of course, were a significant genre for printers in colonial New England. A, gr a glance at Hugh Amory's appendix on statistics in volume one of the history of the book in America shows sermons ranking second only to government publications, with New England leading the way with over 2,700 sermons compared to 422 for the Mid-Atlantic, and merely 65 items for the South. Um, so it is not at all surprising to see this uh, Occam sermon advertised for sale elsewhere within two weeks. But this advertisement bears close scrutiny. First, if you've been following along, you may already have caught the name of Reverend Buell of East Hampton, Long Island. The other two named distributors here are also on Long Island. Why three distributors on Long Island? Well, I think we know. Um, I argue that Occam's stature among the Native community is the cause. White readers may have been motivated by curiosity, local interest in Christianizing the Indians, while many of Occam's potential Native readers would have learned how to read and write from Occam himself in the school he built for their community. So three different distributors for this out on Long Island. Uh, the other noteworthy element of this ad is the addition of a, quote, short account of the life of said Moses Paul. The first New Haven edition on the left does not have that biography, but the source is easily identified as the broadside published most likely by the Greens on the day of Moses Paul's execution. So on the right is the first New London edition with the additional biography. You know you've got the first first if you've got the little pool balls at the end. So. Um, a single copy of this broadside is held by the New York Historical Society. After a look at the scan of it in Digital Evans, um, I was amazed by the details of the woodcut illustration in person. The feathers in the hair of the hanged man are a clear indication of his race. If anyone sees this block used or a portion of it used anywhere else, or if you have any ideas about the four holes in the corners, please uh, let me know. And here we are confronted with the fact that we have neglected the person truly at the center of this bi bibliographical event, Moses Paul, a member of the Wampanoag Nation. Um, 
While time does not permit a complete review of Moses Paul's case or the dozens of newspaper stories about his crime and trial and punishment and execution between December 1771 and the end of 1772, um, some documents must be noted. Um, basically, I mean, the, the very, 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 very short version is he got into a bar fight and accidentally killed a guy. Uh, the base of his appeal was that he had been convicted in, of first-degree murder, that it was premeditated. He argued until the gallows un, that, no, I did not mean to kill that guy. I should not be getting hanged. So it, there, he was protesting his verdict to the end, um, which is not what you're supposed to do in New England. Um, <clears throat> so ah, here we go. So. <clears throat> For three weeks in April and May of 1772, the Connecticut Journal advertises the publication of a letter from J, J one of the Mohegan tribe of Indians, to his countryman, Moses Paul. Um, so Samson Ockham is not the first Native American to publish his own book. Um, so that's our first bibliographical conclusion. But that wasn't really news. Um, but this odd pamphlet was written by Joseph Johnson, Jr., who would go on to marry one of Occam's daughters and play a significant role in the Brothertown movement, which I'll be talking about in a minute. Although this pamphlet is a heartfelt plea for the salvation of Moses Paul's soul, in stark contrast to Occam's sermon, it does not appear to follow any generic conventions or structures whatsoever. I argue that one key to the success of Occam's sermon is that, it has, uh, that he had mastered the formal conventions of the sermon. It looked like a sermon was supposed to look. Um, and so it was a known quantity that was easily digestible. Um, without delving too far into the realms of conjecture here, the timing of events is striking. Moses Paul's execution was originally scheduled for early June, suggesting that Johnson's text was meant as a last-minute plea for salvation. Um, despite the failure of Moses Paul's legal appeal, the sentence was postponed until September, which is first reported on June 5th. So somewhere between Johnson's pamphlet the failure of his appeal, and the postponement of the sentence, Moses Paul decided to write to Samson Ockham to invite him to preach his sermon at his execution. Against all odds, uh, this letter, or a draft of it, exists in the collections of the American Antiquarian Society. Uh, it begins, you have doubtless heard of my doleful situation. Um, and I'm, I do read that as some indication that like, there were a lot of newspaper stories about his crime. This is something that, yeah, people have heard about this. This is a media event. Um, yeah, and it, it, this marks the beginning of Occam's engagement with a process that was already well underway. And I refer to it as the Moses Paul media event. Uh, in her book, Empowering Words, uh, which includes a nice chapter on Occam, Karen Weiler emphasizes that a quote, what she uses the phrase, which I love, functional understanding of literacy, is her phrase, uh, was in some ways more important than the personal attainment of literacy, especially for dispossessed people in the colonies. Moses Paul knew exactly what he was about when he invited Occam to preach, a man with whom he had no personal connections. They weren't even from the same tribe. You know, Moses Paul's Wampanoag, uh, Samson Ockham's Mohegan, not that that's a problem, but it's like they, they didn't know each other. They weren't in the same family or anything. Um, and so, but Moses Paul also knows that Ockham is famous. He was in the newspaper a lot. He went to England. He raised money. He had this kind of public falling out with Eleazar Wheelock. So the, he, the metaphor that I sometimes use, it's the equivalent of someone on death row, an African-American man on death row, inviting somebody of the stature of like Jesse Jackson to come and give his sermon. It's like, I know what will get people's attention. This not very well-written pamphlet gave me an interesting idea. What if I got somebody who actually had public stature and public speaking abilities? So anyway, 
It is also worth briefly noting, and I've got reams and reams of research on this, um, that the legal execution of Native Americans in colonial New England was a regular occurrence. Um, the most recent hanging in Connecticut prior to Moses Paul's was that of John Jacobs, an Indian native, according to the title page of this 1768 pamphlet printed in Hartford. Um, so the only thing unprecedented about Moses Paul's execution is that the sermon was delivered by a native preacher. Public, you know, even Native American you know, Indian hangings were published. Um, so with all of that background in mind, let's resume the story of the sermon with editions two, three, and four, published by Timothy Green of New London, New London is about a seven-mile walk to Mohegan. Um, so this makes a whole lot of sense. I don't think there's any confusion about that. So although he didn't call the first New London edition the second, Green's uh, awareness of the New Haven edition is confirmed by the correct description on editions three, you know, three and four. And I like describing the Green family, borrowing some phrases from Native Studies, it, it's a kinship network. The Greens of Massachusetts and Connecticut, it's a kinship network. So there's some connection there. Um, so, but moving along, the next edition appears to be the Boston edition advertised in the January 1 issue of the Boston Post with the names of both R. Draper and J. Boyles. Um, their names appear together on only one imprint, as far as I can determine, but there's a lot going on here. Uh, the Boston imprints are a total quagmire, as I was whining to, to David Weitzel just a little while ago. Uh, at least five editions, maybe six, with at least one variant issue, maybe others, more, um, and some of the most, I love how the printing is straight, but the page is it's so crooked on that page. Um, so these are just a couple of the Boston editions. Um, there are four imprints with Boyle's name alone, one with Draper alone, which I finally got to see today here at UVA, um, and one clearly printed in Boston with the imprint printed for and, and sold by Seth Adams of Hartford. And it's here that the reason for the demand becomes a little more clear. Um, never mind, I'm going to take me forever to figure out all these Boston editions. But um, <clears throat> there are, um, oop, 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 sorry. And the, the, yeah, Occam's extant letters for 1773 are filled with reports of preaching to large crowds of eager listeners, such as this one to Reverend Well, again, shortly after returning home from Boston. Quote, good old Mr. Moore was better than all the rest of the ministers in Boston to me. He was the only minister in Boston that invited me to preach in his meeting house and preached there four times. Mr. Stillman, a Baptist minister, invited me, but I could not preach there as I was coming away. Um, it's also known that Occam lodged with the Wheatley family when he visited Boston. These are all just people in his evangelical Christian network. So he goes and he hangs out with Phyllis Wheatley. Um, and I'm waiting for someone to take that and go write the play that's about Samson Ockham hanging out with Phyllis Wheatley, and what would they talk about? Um, so, it, so that is a, you know, he's in Boston a lot. Uh, and there's this another, letter, another letter to John Moorhead, uh, quote, I am able to ride again a little, and I have continual calls to preach, both by the English and Indians, and I preach four or five times every week. I have had a great number of visitors since I got home from Boston. I had 40 at once in the beginning, and now I have 12 with me from Long Island. Um, and this slide, is it entirely a coincidence that the issue of the Essex Gazette for January 26, 1773 includes this advertisement for a new Salem edition of the sermon, and on the right, a report of Occam preaching to a, quote, crowded auditory twice in Philadelphia? 
The first Hartford edition followed Salem, February 9, 1773, with the boast that, quote, the honest simplicity and gospel sincerity that appears in the above sermon induced most families in this colony to purchase them, which is a claim that I think they ripped off from one of the Boston advertisements. Um, and I think at this point you can say that Occam is a full-blown celebrity. Um, further evidence of the reach of this work are the two, count them, two broadside adaptations of his sermon into verse. The item on the left is the only known copy of Mr. Occam's address to his Indian brethren. The item on the right is the Evans microfilm of a photostat currently held by New York Public Library with the note on the back, quote, from an original owned by Wilberforce Eames, May 2nd, 1924. So if you see it, I'd like to know about it. Um, the whereabouts of the original are unknown. Uh, the imprint on the photostat reads, sold at the Heart and Crown in Boston and by bulky Emerson at Newburyport. And the AAS record identifies Thomas and John Fleet of Boston as the likely printers. Um, so this flurry of activity ends with the publication of the ninth edition, which it isn't, um, in Boston by Eldad Hunter. Uh, so a new name and the only edition of the sermon with a 1774 date on the title page. But the story does not end here. So you've got the handout, which I think is more up to date than my slide, I apologize. Um, but um, I'm currently at 24 editions, though that number may actually be 23 or it might even be 22. <clears throat> um, there's more work to do. But the editions fall out into three distinct groups. The pre-Revolutionary War editions published while Occam was, is a very active celebrity preacher ranging from Philadelphia to Boston. The second group includes the most common edition. If you've seen one Occam, it's likely the London 1788 edition. Fun fact... Um, Houghton Library, uh, they hold a copy of the New Haven first edition that was used by the editors of the London 1788 edition, which was, that's, that's a good day. That's a good day when you open that one up. Um, so, oh yeah, less, less clear though, I do have a theory, is why there was demand for a Welsh language edition in 1789 and why a second Welsh language edition was called for in 1827. And when the book dealer that we got the uh, 1827 edition from sent me an email, he put the title. That's uh, on the poster. You know, that's the, our 1827 Welsh. He put the title of it in his email, and I thought that someone had hacked, hacked his, his email because, oh, no, that's just Welsh. Um, so the third group of editions published in North America after 1800 present their own special challenges, the last being the Utica edition of 1829. And I believe... That's supposed to be Samson Occam on the left and Moses Paul on the right. Uh, but today I want to wrap up the story of Occam's publication history up to 1774 and end with a brief comment on the uses of bibliography. Um, although the Boston 1774 edition was the last reprinting of his sermon in North America during his lifetime, Occam remained more engaged with the realm of print than ever. Many of you may be aware that a letter from Phyllis Wheatley to Samson Occam um, was published in several newspapers. The first of those newspapers was Timothy Green's the Connecticut Gazette of New London, published in New London, March 11, 1774. Knowing what we now know about the proximity of New London to Mohegan, we can imagine how this private letter moved from Occam to Green to the press. Further evidence of ongoing collaboration between Occam and Green is the April 1st advertisement for an edition of Occam's Poems, um, later that month, the book is advertised as just published with the title we know today, um, 
a choice collection of hymns and spiritual songs, which is obviously my next project. Um, and finally, this advertisement for the London edition of, Wheatley, of Phyllis Wheatley's poems. Uh, note, I love this, a few of the above are likewise to be sold by Samson Ockham. No need to put his address, no need to put like who you can find over in Mohi. It's like, oh yeah, Samson Ockham. Yeah, we know who Samson Ockham is. Yeah, oh, yeah. But it does raise, remember the letter that I quote where he says he's got 40 people over at his house. Um, and again, this is where we're speculating a bit, but you know, he's acting as a distributor for T. Green. And so is it not unreasonable to think that he might have had a small stock of books on hand to sell or give away? And in the summer of 1774, he would have had his sermon, his new, newly published book of uh, hymns that he edited, and he wrote a couple of hymns, um, and he would have had his friend's Phyllis book as well. So that's a really, to me, that's a very striking, striking moment. Um, but at the precise moment of, his, of this activity in the... Um, in the New London Press, Ockham was once again on his way to Oneida, but this time his purpose was very different. Instead of embarking on another mission to Christianize his Indian brethren in the West, Ockham was on his way to finalize a land deal that would establish the new pan-tribal native separatist Christian community known as Brothertown. Um, plans were laid for members of several tribes from southeastern Connecticut and Long Island to voluntarily leave their homelands and live as Christians, apart from white people, on land donated to the cause by the Oneida. My argument is that Ockham's experience with the publication of his sermon enabled the production of the hymnal, which was itself designed for him by use by, for use by a native audience, specifically the Brotherton community. Uh, in his preface of his hymnal, he says... These hymns are in various meters, and especially the last part are of uncommon measures for new tunes and singers. End quote. The American Revolution would interrupt plans for mass migration to Brothertown until 1785, which, by no coincidence at all, is the date of the second edition of the hymnal. And the third edition of 1887 was printed at Hudson, New York, much, much closer to Oneida, and marking a break in the long relationship with T. Green. So I want to end with this simple example of one of the uses of bibliography. Beginning with a popular publication that was thought to have been reprinted 19 times, this map tells a far more interesting story. The red dots represent the editions published before the American Revolution, New Haven, New London, Boston, Salem, Hartford. The yellow dots represent the editions published after 1800. When I first assembled this map about a year ago, I was immediately struck by the dramatic shift from the center of the print world to the fringes. Not only does no post-1800 edition appear in a major publishing center, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, but many of these locations were barely established as colonial settlements during Occam's lifetime. The Springfield and Northampton editions make a certain sense. The Connecticut River is a major corridor um, that connects with Mohegan. Um, but the function of the editions published in Exeter and Jaffrey, New Hampshire, Bennington, Vermont, and Utica, New York, raise very different questions than the pre-revolutionary editions. I will simply suggest that we might think of the printing press as a marker of colonial incursion into native space, a concept I'm happy to talk about at length, um, but not right now. That's for later. Um, I will save the story of those later editions for another time, but I want to linger on this map to consider another use of bibliography, especially for works by traditionally underrepresented authors. To celebrate Occam as the first Native American to publish his own book, note that it was popular, then move on to the next item on the checklist of Native American writers, does a great disservice to both bibliography and the field of Native studies. 
What I hope I've demonstrated through the most basic bibliographical research is that there's far more to all of these stories. Clearly, I have an enormous amount of work left to do sorting out Boston, doing research into all sorts of other, you know, capital punishment and indigenous people and things like that. Um, but I want to conclude with another map and some comments on the importance of descriptive bibliography and what I am going to call bibliographical existentialism. Uh, why not? It is a fundamental tenet of existentialism that existence precedes essence. Without exploring and describing the existences of multiple copies of multiple editions of this vital slice of American literary history, we cannot accurately or fruitfully discuss its essence. How can we generalize about a topic such as Native American literature if we don't have at least a basic knowledge of its material history? How much is there? When and where was it produced? By meticulously noting the existence of multiple editions of works by Native authors and framing them within the broader context of Native space, the ongoing process of settler colonialism, our, our sense of the essence of Native literature shifts. With a better grasp of the who, what, when, where, we can begin profitably contemplating the how and the why. If we first occupant into 1772 and lump the reprints together in a, as a mere marker of popularity, there appears to be substantial gap between the first and the second, third, fourth indigenous writers. But this map reveals overlap with two editions of David Cusick's Ancient History of the Six Nations, printed at Tuscarora Village uh, near Niagara in Buffalo. Uh, those are at New York Public. Those two editions are at New York Public Library. Um, yeah, so we have two editions of Cusick's Ancient History of the Six Nations, printed uh, in 1827 and 1828. There's a third edition in 1848, but it's not on this map. Uh, and the first edition of William Apis's Son of the Forest, printed at the opposite end of the newly completed Erie Canal in New York City in 1829. So, and Apis's second edition appears in New York in 1831. So I hope that, and then you've got the 1829 Utica edition. So the panel that I want to have on this sometime is what's going on in New York in 1828-29. I actually know the answer. The Brotherton Indians are about to be removed to Wisconsin. Um, when I showed Lisa Brooks the cover of the 1829 Utica edition, she immediately said, oh, that's a warning. That's a warning to Indians. Um, so you can see his, his function of his work has been completely inverted. The Kim Waite Eisenberg collection at Amherst College contains 125 records for items published before 1900, and every one of those items is in want of similar, similar bibliographical exploration. So are the items published since 1900. Um, anyone who needs a hot bibliographical tip? George Copway. Well, I'm saying George Copway. At Amherst, next week, we are hosting an IMLS-grant-funded gathering of librarians, scholars, tribal historians, digital humanities types, and indigenous community members from far and near for the initial planning meeting of a project we are currently calling the Digital Atlas of Native American Intellectual Traditions, by which we hope to further explore the topics that I have raised here today. Thank you. Ask me the questions in the front. Um, sin is bad. God, awesome. Um, so, so it is. It's a very traditional sermon. Um, it is, you know, the wages of sin is death. 
um, he's towing the party line. I mean, this is very perfectly acceptable um, theologically. He's writing a good congregationalist-ish sermon. Um, and there is a section at the end, those broadsides that pull out Occam's, Mr. Occam's address to his Indian brethren um, at the end of the sermon. You know, in sermons, there's like address to the condemned, address to the, the, the whole group. And there is, you know, and then he turns and says, address to my Indian brethren. And he says, he, he lay, it's a temperance sermon. He lays into them about drinking. Look what happened when Moses, because Moses Paul was drinking, because the other guy was drinking too, all this had to happen. So you shouldn't drink. And he's explicit and he's fierce. And that's what, you know, is pulled out. The other message in his sermon is, it doesn't matter if you are black or white or like me, the poor Indian, God's love is for everyone. And all sinners, regardless of whether you're black, white, or Indian, go to hell. So this is a very inclusive theology. I mean, this is his approach. This is what, um, and I think this is also a cause of some friction with some of his white uh, evangelical network folks. Um, you know, he makes a hymnal specifically because in his preaching to native groups, he's found that singing really works. And so in his letters, he's asking his sponsors, he'll write to Wheelock and say, can you send some more hymnals? Can you send any songbooks? Thank you for those books. We could use more songbooks. So what I want to do now is go back through and really look at more of uh, a history of Samson Occam's engagement with print as a wider thing, I'm, you know, I'm bibliographizing his, all of his work. Like, he published a sermon, he published this hymnal, these came out in multiple editions, let's figure that out. That's sort of baseline, easy stuff. Let us determine what exists, and then we can begin to put together what it, what it means. Um, but I think that's one of those areas I need to do more research in, is exactly how that theology, what, were, the, were there theological difference and, uh, differences I'm not aware of yet, so... Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot over on the side there. Yes. Yeah, I'm super interested in the Welsh edition of the <laughs> sermon. And you said, did you say you had a theory? Oh, yeah, I got, I got all of uh, that. I want to hear about that theory. Okay. Uh, some of the earliest abolitionist poetry in the, published in the 18th century is published in Welsh in Wales. And so there is this abolitionist something-something going on in Wales. Um, but you also have these figures in, um, in England at the time who are becoming very... Uh, Countess Huntington is this big figure in you know, setting up an orphan school uh, for Indians in Georgia that was funded by slave labor. So they weren't quite clear. They were still working it out. Um, <laughs> But you know, there is this, you know, this iconoclastic Welsh tradition. I do not get the 1827 reprint. And I have, there is actually a Smith student who this fall, um, if she's on campus, reads Welsh. And I just need someone who reads Welsh to look at it and say, like, yes, these, these two editions are the same text. Or is it a new translation? Or what? But there are some, there's, yeah, I have a book of essays about Welsh printing history on my shelf. Um, yes? Have you compared the textual variances or found any between all the different editions? There aren't any. I mean, well, there are, but there aren't. Um, it's, it's really like, at first I was like, okay, you know, get to the Antiquarian Society. They've got 14 different editions there. I love the Antiquarian Society. Um, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to keep, I'm going to find them. And I was like, no, everyone just reprints it. Um, even the 1829, 
even that 1820, that is clearly not a pro-native people publication. Um, the only place there is any kind of significant textual difference is that London edition 1788. The Harvard, I don't know if this is a clue or not, the Harvard copy of the first New Haven edition does not have its cover. So when they printed the London edition, they said, you know, 1788, they thought it was, the, the date on the title page is that it was printed in New Haven in 1788, reprinted in London 1788. I think they just might not have known when it was actually printed. I think because the title page is not there, but that entire copy of that first edition is marked up, and all those markings perfectly correspond to what was printed in the 1788. Um, so that's sort of yeah, that's a really good day in the in the archives. Uh, yes. Oh yeah, and they're they're gonna sell. They're like right. Um, yeah, it's funny because the only, um, there aren't very many illustrated ones. Um, the only other, you know, there's the, the, death, the skull and bones cut that's repeated, um, which is just traditional sermon, execution sermon thing. Um, but there's this cover, um, the 1810 Bennington, Vermont edition has a Harlequin cut on the, on the cover, which baffled me. Philip Round writes about that one. Um, and he says, you know, is it a mocking figure? Is it meant to mock Samson Ockham? And then it was Paul, um, Paul Erickson pointed out that the Harlequin figure looked kind of like earlier representations of native people. So I think they were looking for what cut do we have in our kit that looks kind of Indian that we could put on the cover. Um, and this is like, I have, these are all, I have a lot of theories that need a lot more work. Um, but I do think it's interesting the way that these, Im yeah, the, the images are definitely a big part of that. Um, yeah. And I'm sorry, but the, oh, yeah, yeah, the country printing. I, yeah, I think they're doing this, you know, it's uh, a sure seller. It's a popular thing. Um, and I think it is an anti-India. I think Samson Occam's sermon, basically, my big theory is Samson Occam's sermon after 1800 is used as anti-Indian propaganda. Um, that it's about it also it develops and reinforces the drunk Indian stereotype. So I think that's part of what's going on here. It is a as when Lisa Brooks said warning, I was like, yeah, okay. And then I go back and look at the others and think about that. But much, 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 much more work to be done. And I'm happy to talk more with anybody about any of these things. I'm easy to find at Amherst.edu, um, and I have a sense that I'm being. The music's about to start, and I'm going to be... I never did so much good, nor so much, dare I say, bibliography.
Thank you. Thank you. giving you a copy of the poster used to advertise your talk. And um, there is reception to which all are invited back in Rare Book School. And please join me in thanking Mike for his lecture today. Oh.